0: Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times, you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Reset. Sometimes you'll see a story, whether in your community, online, or in the news, that is so unjust, so unfair, that you think, oh my gosh, I have to do something about this. But maybe you're not sure where to start. Well, you're not alone, and against all odds, there are many people, from activists to community organizations and beyond, who have already carved the path forward, working tirelessly to try and make meaningful progress and systemic change in their neighborhoods, in their states, and on the national stage. Now, several of those efforts are laid out in author Ijoma Oluo's latest book, Be a Revolution, how everyday people are fighting oppression and changing the world, and how you can too. You might recognize the prolific writer's name from her previous titles, So You Want to Talk About Race, and Mediocre, the Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Well, for her new book, Oluo traveled the country and conducted interviews with changemakers in the fields of education, health, criminal justice, and the arts, to learn more about how they're working toward a more equitable society. Plus, she shares ways that you can join the fight. Here's our conversation. So I heard a little rumor that your December 2020 book, Mediocre, that it was supposed to be your last one that was focused on racial justice. Yet here we are, a little over three years later. So I got to ask, what changed? What prompted you to write, Be a Revolution?
1: Uh, you know, I kind of didn't want to go out like that. You know, um, <laughs> I, I love me. But what a way to go out. <laughs> right. It's, it's it's absolutely one of my favorite things I've ever written. But the process of writing it was incredibly traumatic and difficult. And I figured if I'm going to take some time and step away, I actually want the last thing I do for a while in this space to be joyful and celebratory and Honestly, on a personal level, I would love my community members, my peers, other movement workers to get the best of me for a while. And yeah. it really culminated in a particular time of hardship for my own family where community came out and supported us. And it just reminded me that, yeah, this is why we're here. This is actually why we can keep doing what we're doing. And I wanted other people to see that, too. And I wanted to celebrate that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you make clear in the book, you you make it clear that we all have different roles in this fight uh, against oppression. As you mentioned, you've chosen to do your part through writing, writing about race and racism. How did you decide that this was going to be the space that you would take up?
1: You know, part of it was where my skills and my preferences lied. I had always wanted to be a writer. And if you had asked me as a child, do you want to write about?" violent white supremacy your whole life? No, absolutely not, right? But my skills worked with this, and it's what I needed at the time. So I'd say first and foremost, for a lot of people, you know, they start with what they need at the time, and what I needed as a Black woman in America was to be able to express my fear, my pain, my outrage, and the love I had for community, Mm -hmm. and then that coincided with the talents that I had. And it happened to fill a need in community, in the world, and I was fortunate enough, you know, to be able to build from there and really build work around there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all have different areas in this work and that area can change. And there is a, an amazing feeling in knowing that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing at this moment. And for me, that's writing. And the process of actually writing this book really underscored it for me in a way that has been incredibly meaningful.
0: I love that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in this moment. I try to live my life that way, too. Thinking that way. What
1: a positive yeah, way to think. and you know, it changes. It's a beautiful thing about life is, you know, who knows five years from now?
0: Yeah, I'm right like, where I'm supposed to be. I'm doing mm-hmm. what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, in the book, you you lay out the path of what some other folks are doing, right? So, various change makers, ordinary folks, they've taken on this revolutionary journey, as you put it. And you start out with Richie Reseda and Manny Thomas. These are two men who were once caught up in the prison system. Tell us more about them and talk about how they connected through Reseda's organization, Success Stories.
1: Yeah, it was amazing actually to talk with them. I had been a fan of Richie Beseda's work for a long time, uh, and Richie Beseda is someone who built multiple change-making organizations in prison. He had been caught up in the prison system around Los Angeles um, since he was a teenager, even before then. Mm-hmm. And within there, he started building change and. The story of what he was able to build because he believed in himself when nobody believed in him and because he believed in the others around him that were also caught up in this system and that people can grow and change and heal was beautiful. And he built something that I think is unlocking generations of tra- of trauma and unlocking generations of potential and helping people heal in a ways that people with multiple degrees and studying this haven't been able to do mm-hmm. because he's leading with love and he's leading with faith in people. And so he launched an organization that seeks to combat white supremacist patriarchy and the ways in which that harms men, especially black and brown men and can often contribute to why they are find themselves incarcerated and trapped by the prison industrial complex and helping them heal even while they're still incarcerated yeah. so that they have a life and that their life you know has the meaning they want it to have and they have that that measure of healing even even if you're still behind bars and that idea that you mm. deserve to live you deserve to heal you deserve to grow no matter where you are in the world i think is so revolutionary and so he built this and while in prison, you know, recruited Manny Thomas into this. Yes. And Manny is now running one of the co-directors of the program. And, you know, it's revolutionized his life and helps him revolutionize other lives as well. And it's just such a beautiful story of what we can build. You know, when we think outside of the box, whether it's because we're pushed to, you know, Mm -hmm. or whether we choose to or a combination of both.
0: Yeah, in this section, you know, you talk about, as you mentioned, white supremacy, the black feminist theory pops up a lot. Patriarchy is another word that comes up quite a bit here. Broadly speaking, Ijoma, what are some of the ways that you've seen patriarchy harm people of color?
1: I think it's important first to start with the erasure of all of the different ways in which we have existed as populations of color and indigenous populations with regards to gender and sexuality that were forcibly taken from us. Our ideas of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, or that you have to be a man or a woman and your relationships have to look this way were forced upon us by white supremacist patriarchy. And a lot of the healing of that is realizing that this is also part of a racist project. It's not just, we can't just say patriarchy lives here, white supremacy lives here. It is all part of the white supremacist project to make sure not only that we don't have autonomy over our bodies and our labor is stolen from us, But that the ways in which we define ourselves, our families, our communities are determined by this white supremacist patriarchy. And so I think that's at core. And then recognizing the ways in which we have all patriarchal violence and sexual violence Mm -hmm. has been used, particularly against populations of color, to control and exploit. And that goes across gender. So, you know, we don't talk about the ways in which. Black men caught up in the prison industrial complex are regularly sexually violated, right? And their bodily autonomy is taken from them. That is part of patriarchy. That is part of that idea of how you control people is by enacting these violences upon them. And so it is all really connected. And we really do have to recognize Mm. that.
0: While we're defining terms, transformative justice, what does that mean to you?
1: So for me, transformative justice and, of course, people have different ideas around it, but the general idea is that we are looking at healing the entirety of harm. So we look at harm done between individuals or between an organization and individuals and say, where's the full scope of responsibility? These things don't happen in a vacuum. It's not person A harmed person B. It's person A harmed person B, and the community around person A contributed to harm. And, you know, the community around person B is invested in healing, and the community around person A is invested in healing. And what does it mean to affirm the humanity of the person harmed by saying, we're not punishing this person, we're making sure that this won't happen again, because Mm -hmm. we're healing all of the levels of harm done and you have a say in what that looks like and your well-being matters and the well-being of this community matters and it's about transforming community and individuals through that process of justice Mm. and looking for us saying victory means we come out of this transformed and our relationship our relationships come out of it transformed
0: yeah you know what I love is you, you've got a call of action of sorts at the end of each section of the book, right? You, you list these very specific ways that folks can get involved in the various causes. Why was that important to include your Be a Revolution
1: yeah. chapters? On multiple levels, I, it was important for me. One, first and foremost, I think if you write, speak, talk, exist as someone who you know knows firsthand about systemic oppression, The frustration of people who really think that feeling upset about it is an action is real. You know, the idea that, Oh, I read a book and I cried. So I did something and no, you didn't do something. (laughs) You (laughs) cried. (laughs) And people are dying. You know, people are dying fast, slow in so many different ways because of these systems. We have to do something. And I wanted to take away that excuse of, Oh, it's sad. What can I do? But also I really do believe the That there's a debt owed. Every single person that shared their story with me, that was so generous to open themselves up, to share their pain, to share their victory, to share their dreams, when time and time again, people have let them down. You owe a debt you owe a debt. They took time out of their community. They took time out of their work to share this in the hopes that you would do something. Mm. And so I owe a debt. They sat with me and I want to make sure that that investment they gave, that generosity they gave has a better chance of paying off by making it as easy as I can for people to get started on doing work.
0: In the opening of the uh, the disability and race chapter of Be a Revolution, you write, quote, if there's a chapter that has truly changed me and changed how I see activism, how I see the world, and how I see my place in it, it is this one. What made you say that?
1: It really has. Uh, it was, it changed how I see myself, how I see my work. It changed the whole structure of the book. Once I started interviewing people, when I started interviewing disabled BIPOC activists and realizing, wow, they really are standard bearers for what liberatory justice looks like, for what it means to say our entire bodies, minds, selves deserves to be free, deserves to be valued, and that we will fight every which way in which that is denied. And it pointed to the ways in which so many of our movements still get caught up in ableism, And even, you know, Black Lives Matter movements and Black liberation movements, Mm. anti-capitalist movements, we still get caught up in this idea that we have to prove our work based on some sort of mental or physical contribution that it needs to be measured. It has to have a number and not we're human beings who deserve to live and thrive. I want
0: to say here for a second, you said that these movements, they're so caught up in ableism. I want to make sure everyone listening understands that the the harm that's caused when the needs of disabled people aren't considered when we're doing these organized protests and other movement work
1: yes and it's important to realize that that endangers all of us so even the stats show right that 50% of people killed by police are deaf or disabled Right. That's a number we don't talk about when we're marching. That's the largest group of people impacted. Hmm. So imagine if you are black or indigenous and deaf or disabled and the risk you're at. And we're not talking about what that means. We're not talking about ableism in that equation. But it's also important to remember that racism itself is a hierarchy of bodies and minds. Right. The story of racism is these people's bodies were made for labor to be exploited their brains aren't capable of knowing or understanding or fully participating in society. Those are ableist sentiments right there, Mm, right? And so that means that we are all harmed by ableism. And when we say things like, he didn't deserve to die because he was a college student, we're actually playing into that because what we are saying, the flip flip side of that is, this person who isn't did deserve it. And we need to recognize how we are contributing to this story that our value is conditional when we are ableist. And we are leaving room for not only harm for those who aren't disabled, but we are actively harming those who are within our own community. And we're also cutting ourselves off from solutions because the truth is, is that disabled BIPOCs have been cut out of every major institution in this country. And... Every major movement outside of disability justice and BIPOC disabled people have been cut out of most disability justice movements. So every bit of progress, their very survival has required immense creative thinking and planning and strategizing that we could all benefit from. That could mean so much for us and we don't lean into that. And then I guess the final thing I will say is there's no such thing as trickle down social justice. Mm. So what do you mean? so what it means is the most privileged in our group what serves them is not going to serve the least privileged but what serves the least privileged the most targeted in our groups will always serve us so when i'm thinking about what will what will get me free i'm thinking what would free a disabled trans black or native sex worker that's going to free me no matter what mm. but if but if instead i'm saying what would free an you know it, like if we're looking at black liberation okay what would free an middle class black man i may i may see very little of that right and so it's important that we recognize that that are we've been conditioned still to find and prioritize privilege even within our movements and disability is often at the very bottom of that ladder and our downfall lies in ignoring that and not being willing to address ableism and not being willing to integrate disability justice is fundamental to all of our movement work.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking with author Ijoma Oluo. She's out with a new book. It's called Be a Revolution: How Everyday People Are Fighting Oppression and Changing the World and How You Can Too. So we're digging into all of the parts. It's out today. You gotta go check it out. Uh, Ijoma. Let's shift to another chapter where you tackle the question, is revolution possible in our schools? Uh, at one point, you, re- you even make a comparison in there, um, a quick one, but between America's education system and the carceral system. Talk more about similarities and maybe roadblocks you see in both.
1: Yeah, it, when it comes to the book, that this book was the most difficult chapter. This was the most difficult chapter in the book for me. Uh, oh, was it, was it? Yeah, and it was the most bleak chapter in the book for me. And and that surprised me because I am a lifelong nerd who, you know, I said multiple times, loved education, loved learning, loved school. School was a haven for me at many times, even at times when I was targeted by it as a black woman. And the state of our public school system and the way in which it's been targeted, even, even with, while it still has its own white supremacy problems and has for a long time, the way in which it's being made further unsafe for students of color and for teachers and faculty of color Mm. really risk the well-being of multiple generations of our communities. And it is so important that we see how that has been really baked in the vulnerabilities that we're seeing right now have been baked into the system. When people are asking, how are we having these laws passed saying that we can't talk about race in schools anymore? Well, we need to look at the ways in which white supremacy has infiltrated our schools and our school boards that make it so easy to be able to change these rules that make it so easy to silence and marginalize teachers and faculty of color who are trying to do something different Mm -hmm. and parents and you know, students of color who are saying, I want something different. It is really important that we look at that. And it can be frustrating because it is a system and we don't look at education like a system. We don't realize that every story you hear about perhaps a teacher who is, you know, being racist against the student, what you have is years of training in that. What you have is a whole hierarchy that supports and rewards that behavior. Right. And then a, you know that hierarchy that is also pushing against any sort of accountability or real change. And yeah. so the question is what do we do to change that? Can we change it within the system? Do we have to do that work outside of the education system? Where are we mitigating harm and when are we where are we really revolutionizing education and learning? Because education and learning of course is fundamental. But it doesn't just exist in Mm -hmm. schools.
0: Well, to that end, you you talk about how you have seen educators and administrators and and students try to create a more inclusive environment. But you you do write, you know, that effort, it's often one step forward, two steps back.
1: Yes, it is. And we're in a crucial time right now, I think, because so many people don't so many people who actually care about this issue who want equitable education so many parents who are really concerned about this still aren't quite looking at it on a systemic level and aren't saying there are levers we need to be pulling and pushing and there's pressure we need to be putting on the system to work differently in the same way that those who are actually trying to take this away from our schools are and It's really hard because then what it means is you have individuals fighting so desperately because they love these students to create change and they're not supported by their administration, they're not supported by other parents. And so they're being punished and they're leaving. And I'm talking to teachers who are in their 20s, who are talking to me like they're in their 50s and they've been doing this for 30 years and they're Mm -hmm. worn down and they're having panic attacks at home and they're not sleeping and they're going to therapy twice a week just to be able to show up for our students. And we need to realize that this isn't, you know, regional. I live in Seattle and there's people who are like, oh, thank goodness we are in Seattle. We don't have to worry about what Florida is doing for education. But but you do. Exactly. This is happening as you do.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like you got to worry about what's happening here in our city in Chicago. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: This process, though, this this vetting process, what was that like selecting the folks that you were going to interview? So, I mean, you've got some great names in here on education. You're talking to Zarina Angeles Luna. And, you know, when we were talking about our disability conversation, Dr. Sammy Shock was a really, really good source in there. How were you finding these people? What was that like?
1: That was such a beautiful, wonderful process. It's it's really hard to like reach out to people and be like, hey, do you want to talk to me? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to be? I mean, I'm writing this thing. Do you want to be part of it? Yeah. Most writers aren't known for being extroverts. We're not known for being the life of the party. Um, it it really stretched my my own personal social skills. But of course, there were some people I had been in community with and doing work with for a long time that I always knew I wanted to talk to, some people whose work I saw out in the world I wanted to talk to. But a lot of it too was, you know, there was the process of research and saying, what's happening that's really inspiring right now? And who's behind that? And who would I love to talk to? And then a lot of it, some of the best pe- you know, introductions I had were from other people I was talking to. And so what I always asked at the end of a conversation was, if you were to pick up this book and read where you're featured in this, what's a name that you would be deeply disappointed to not find in here, you know, ah. and people we're so generous. People really did refer me to other people. And then people gave me the generosity of their time and their trust. That was
0: such it a was- great question. You asked. <laughs> like if I didn't put this person in there, like what, that would deeply disappoint you. Right. Okay. Well, then mm-hmm. that's the name that you need to chase.
1: Yep. And it was lovely. And I'm I'm so grateful. Like the generosity of everyone. There's, but I think 34 people profiled throughout this book that the generosity of that time and those connections to say to someone who may not like talking to strangers who may not like being in the public eye hey can you please talk with Ijoma? I think that she's going to do right by you and your words it was a huge it felt like a huge responsibility but the honor of it was something that was with me all of the time
0: now Ijoma, you're a writer you're a speaker you're also a self-described internet yeller you got to tell me what's behind that title.
1: Yeah, that's been around for a long time. Um, you know, social media was where people were first introduced to my work. And I th- I think for a lot of black women, um, you know, who were in social media at a particular time, in black Twitter time, you know, that is the case because there were a lot of boundaries, a lot of barriers to us being heard in other spaces. And traditional outlets did not want to put our words out there. Mm-hmm. And people would try to denigrate that you know, people would say, Oh, you're just a blogger. Right. And people would say, you say that like it was bad. Oh, "Oh, you're just mad. You're just yelling on the internet. That felt like a dagger
0: to the heart, didn't it?
1: Right. Yeah. (laughs) You're nothing but a blogger. Exactly. (laughs) And you know, people would say you yell on the internet, like it's a bad thing. Like, like we're not talking about brutality. Like we're not talking about things worth yelling about as if we don't have the rights and so I was like, you know what? This is going in my auto signature. And so that's where it started. It went in my auto signature. It went in my business cards. And I just I just kept it to honor those early days, to honor what made me, what brought me here. And to say unabashedly, some some things are worth yelling about. Mm-hmm. And even though this is my voice, and this is how I honestly talk all the time, I'm at least yelling in print. It's, you know, all caps in spirit, if not in reality. I
0: love that. Well, here's another title of yours, Mom. You are yes. a mom. Uh, I'm curious what discussions of race looked like at home and how early you started. I've got teenage girls, and, and I'd love to know how early you started talking about some of these real topics here that are, you know, very much part of our reality.
1: Right. You know, I was um, a very I was a young mother with my first child. I was 20 when he was born. And I don't know what language I had to really talk at that time. He was with me. He went to college with me. So he had this kind of academic idea about things. He would sit in on some of my classes when I couldn't find babysitting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I didn't quite know how to communicate to him my reality and the reality that he was moving into until he was a little bit older. My younger son was born in the kind of, you know, he was born when I was a little bit older and was four or five, six, as I was really building my writing career, And what was amazing to me, you know, my first goal was to have a pro-Black household. That was that was number one, because I knew what that meant for me as far as safety growing up in a majority white space. You have to have a pro-Black home. You have to have one space where kids feel centered and seen and loved and everything about them that the world tells them needs to be different because it's tied to their Blackness is just absolutely celebrated in the space. And Mm so I worked really hard to build a pro-Black home. And I didn't realize how early my son would want to talk about race. And he's the one who started it, probably age four, having really? conversation.
0: What yeah, prompted yeah.
1: that? You know, it would he would notice patterns and things, you know, we have this pro-Black household, but then he would go get a little kid's video game and there wouldn't be any Black characters, you know? And mm. he wouldn't understand why, or someone would take him to a movie and there wouldn't be any Black characters. And the heartbreak of it for him, he took it personally. He couldn't understand why. And I remember at four, actually, he started. Um, there was a family member who kept, you know, kind of introducing him to these things without thinking about what's the diversity in this space. Where are he, is he seeing people like him? And he just burst out crying, saying, "You you hate me because because I'm black and you're racist because he was looking and seeing nothing that you're bringing around looks like me. So wow. you obviously don't like me at that and, age. Yeah. And I realized like, wow. Kids are Mm. taking it all in and they're forming their own conclusions and often in ways that can be more harmful than sitting down and just talking and talking about it and being able to realize their needs and being able to have honest conversations with everyone in the family saying, hey, if you think this kid is too young to know about it, he's taking in everything here. And so, you know, we have we've had conversations early and, of course, they're very politically informed in. The- and, you know, now I have, you know, my youngest is 16, so he doesn't want to hear anything I have to say. Um, <laughs> he-, he finds his own sources for everything and is very, very politically active, like in school, follows politics closely, follows the world closely, but also is still a kid. And you can see the fear around the decisions that so many adults are making. And a lot of what I try to do is empower him, mm-hmm. try to remind him of how he can make change in his space. And that's something I've been doing with him for a long time is, yeah. you know, after an election, when, when Trump was elected, talking about, okay, you know, I am so sorry. I am oh, so the sorry. The conversation
0: we all had to have that year.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so for me, a lot of focus was, okay, you're going in school and, you and a lot of your friends are feeling really afraid right now so what can what can you do in this space what can you do in this space where you have a little bit of power yeah. to make this space safe
0: yeah you the, the fear is he's thinking ahead right he knows that he's that next he's next mm-hmm. he's got next and yeah. so the it, he's already feeling the world on his shoulders as he should not at a, at 16 but here's where we are i, I mean in going back to your childhood right and your mother is white. Your late father is uh, was black, Nigerian. Mm-hmm. Um, you've talked, though, about the fact that being biracial, that wasn't part of your identity growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, how your mom, in her own way, I guess, tried to maybe shield you from some of the racist slurs and things that would inevitably come. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, it was interesting because I would say... I have never identified as biracial. I wasn't seen as biracial growing up. And yet I can't pretend like it didn't inform who I am, right? Being a light-skinned Black woman, of course, informs the way in which I experience Blackness um, in ways that I didn't quite understand. Because when you're growing up in in a majority white space, all you have to be is the only black person in the room. And then you're the you're the darkest person in the room. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was the only black person in almost every classroom I was in. My brother was as well. So we were called the N word regularly. You know, we were ostracized regularly. Kids weren't allowed to come to our house. People would shout things at us, you know, from their cars. And my mom wanted so desperately for us to feel good about ourselves to be proud of who we were to feel connected to who we were so she raised us in 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 her best idea of a pro-black household right so in a pro-nigerian household and trying to keep us connected it was limited because she had no idea what everyday racism looked like she was like someday someone's going to do this to you because you're black and it's going to look like this thing that she'd seen on television and not you know every day you're going to have a teacher who may think you didn't turn in your own homework because they're not expecting you to do so well. That's another thing she was ever prepared for. And so those were things we had to figure out a lot on our own. But I will say the benefit of at least knowing that our mom saw that we were Black, and we'd have to fight that because I run into Black people raised by white parents where the pain stays with them of feeling like their parents refused to see who they were and refused to make room for their racialized experience in the world. Um, and that sticks with you your whole life. People come up to me crying at age 50, 60, yeah. because they still don't feel loved and fully seen by the people who raised them. And luckily, I didn't have to deal with that. But I still have to have some of the most awkward conversations with my mom when I realized like, mm. oh, you still don't get how that works.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, speaking of awkward conversations, earlier, I mentioned your book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America it's shining a light on how white male mediocrity really has become a core ideology in the U S and I feel like if there is a book of yours that made folks uncomfortable and by folks, I mean white folks, I would say that it was this one. So walk us through your meaning of white male mediocrity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say, it's this idea that we see every day, which is you can be the, quote, unquote, every man, white man. And people are like, I relate to him, give him a job, give him a promotion. And you don't actually have to be good at things. And in fact, you do, they don't want you to be. It's celebrated, you know, the the thought that we would elect a president because we feel like we could have a beer with him instead of he has these accolades. And yeah, he knows and how to way. run the country. Exactly. <laughs> But that's something reserved only for whiteness, right? There is no way in which um, populations of color, and I'd say especially women of color, would be able to be less than 100% competent all of the time. And even then, that's degraded, right? It's seen as not really existing in order to be able to move through the world. And the harm that that does, this idea that Power is relative, that you can only have power if someone else loses power, that that show of strength is more important than what you contribute to society, to the relationships you build, you know, to anything like that, um, that all you have to have is audacity and you don't actually have to have good ideas. So you don't have to have experience. That is something that we are seeing destroying so much of us and it has. And so what I wanted to show with Mediocre is, you know, I was so frustrated with people saying, how did we get here? And I wrote this, of course, while Donald Trump was president. How did we get here? This is shocking. How did we get here? And I'm like, we've been here and we've been here over and over and over. And so with that, we're still here. Exactly. We're still here. We're We're still, we never left. (laughs) And I wanted to show people what it looks like and what it costs because it costs all of us. Everyone suffers except for the very few elite at the top. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, I, I would not want for my sons, for them to grow up thinking, you know what? Actually, we don't want you to be an active, you know, beneficial part of society. We want you to try to rule. And we want you to be the just the loudest person in the room, and that's it. We want you you know we we don't want you to have to strive too hard. we don't want you to have to to do that power will be defined by who you can subjugate that's soul destroying, and that harms everyone and oh. we see that you know and so it's I wanted to show that through history and through storytelling of what has happened in our society over and over again yeah. and I want people to engage with that. And it's funny because that is the one book where I actually get more emails from white men saying, of course, this is my, but they're saying, this is my life. They're saying oh. I didn't know. They're like, Oh, this was my whole twenties and thirties. I was angry and raging at everyone because I thought the world owed me because I never tried hard, but I was also supposed to have a beautiful wife and mm. make $200,000 a year and this and this and this. And I didn't. And you just named a thing that I was never allowed to name. Actually, See, I, ex- I, I expected you to say serious. that they were complaining. Yeah, no, no. That's what I, get, I thought you were I, gonna say. I know. I get these emails from men going, No one has ever explained what I grew up in, what I was, you know, taught to expect, and why it never materialized. I actually just got an email just yesterday from an elder white man who was like, This is my this was so much of my life raging at the world because I was promised a kingdom. And it never came. Mm.
0: Let's talk about your book. So you want to talk about race. That one came out in 2018. Lots of success there. That's where you first broke down the the complex realities of white privilege and uh, also systemic discrimination and Black Lives Matter. Uh, So six years later, what do you think it is about America that keeps that book so relevant? I joked earlier when I said we never left.
1: We're still here. Mm-hmm. You know, for me sometimes that's actually frustrating. I, I laugh to keep from crying. Yeah. I wrote the book and I'm like in 2020 when everyone was buying it, I was like, oh, we're still trying to talk about it. And I get it. Like we meet people where they are. <laughs> and I was like, could we, could we maybe move into the I'm gonna do a thing? <laughs> I'm gonna do something about it part. Um, but people are deliberately kept from this knowledge. This is a fundamental book on these particular issues based on questions that people ask me over and over again or that we need them to ask to understand how systemic racism works in society and how we contribute to it. And people are deliberately kept from understanding that. And that goes across racial and ethnicity because we all are in the same public school system, right? We all have the same toxic media. And so, you know, you may, like for me as a black woman, I can say in my early years, I knew something was wrong in a way that white people couldn't know, but could I name it? Mm. You know, could I I name the mechanism of it? No, because I certainly wasn't told in school. I wasn't told, you know, I had to search that out. And so I think that what helps it is one, there's just people always waking up to this idea that, oh, there is something here, and I've been kept from it, and I need to start at the beginning. (laughs) I really need to understand it. And then also, I think I was really careful with that book, and honestly, with all of my work, to try to put my own experience and my own growth in the book itself, and let people know, don't be ashamed of where you're at at this point if you're willing to move forward and I'll show you where I've been moving forward and you yeah. know where I've gotten it wrong and I think for a lot of people who are newer to trying to understand this um there's a lot of fear that they'll be judged and you know and I'm not even saying never judge or never be angry I think a lot of people I have a lot of people have right to be angry if you are a black or indigenous person and you've been facing racism every day and a white person comes up to you and goes, oh, I just realized this thing exists that you've been talking about this whole time. You have every right to be bitter, every right to be angry, but there does need to be a space where you can come and learn and grow. And I think that book continues to be one of those spaces. And so for me, Be a Revolution is kind of like that next step. Like, oh, you are fully aware and now here's here's what you can do do about
0: it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So we've mentioned uh the president a few times with the former president there's another important presidential election upon us. Uh, I'm curious how you see some of your words and your your teachings things that you've written about playing out politically in 2024 like and and what concerns you right now leading up to November.
1: Um I am concerned on a lot of levels, and but I'm not necessarily concerned in a new way. I think that our systems, especially when we're talking about the highest levels of government, are working the way that they have been working and causing the sort of grievous harm that they've been causing for a long time. And that is really frustrating for a lot of people. And people are feeling really burned out. And people are feeling like there is no choice they can make that would actually bring any sort of meaningful change or justice. And I don't blame them. Right. We we just had this election that was supposed to mean a lot of change. And here we are. And people are not seeing it. And not only are we seeing it, we're seeing gross harm being carried out by the United States and supported mm-hmm. by our government that we don't have a say in. Right. And so it's easy to feel like, oh, nothing I say matters. And so what I hope honestly that people will look at. One is we have to keep that critique. We have to really be honest about it. We have to stop gaslighting people and saying, if you get this person into the White House, it's gonna mean this fundamental change. No, the system is gonna be what the system is until we change the system. But also I hope that people will look at what individuals are doing and have been doing to survive this and say, this is actually where we invest our time, our energy, our money, our resources in the community on a community level Black, brown, indigenous and disabled communities exist today because we've worked outside of these systems, because we've worked together, because we've created something new, because we've challenged and defended and fought for each other. Yeah. And that even in your ballot, I really hope people because I I get that people are going to be feeling really hopeless and helpless. And I'm I'm one of those people. I hope that you're looking down ballot and saying, okay, so on a local level here. What change can I make that really, really matters that can change how my community works and and empower this important community? Yeah. And so educate yourself on that level. Don't let it turn you completely away. Have it instead make you look locally and and look internally and say, where do I have power right here and really invest and nourish that.
0: So many nuggets in this book. Toward the end, you talk about mental health and well-being, right, you know, as as I think we've illustrated through, throughout this conversation, racial justice work is exhausting and it's traumatic, right? Um, all the while you're trying to heal yourself, you're trying to heal your community, you're trying to heal society as a whole, fix all of these wrongs. Uh, you you know, talk about some of your, your various subjects in the book and, and how they take care of their mental health, but I'm, I'm curious how that works for you, Ijoma. Where, where are you finding joy
1: you know, it's something I have to remind myself of a lot. And especially I would say right now, these last few months have been incredibly hard. Um, As a Black woman, as someone who has been, um, you know, fighting with Indigenous peoples and with Palestinian peoples for a long time, these last few months have been incredibly traumatizing, draining. And then it's always important for me to say, okay, these communities I'm in and these communities I'm fighting with, what am I fighting to protect? And have I than investing in that right so it's not just what am i fighting against even in the midst of this even in the midst of all of this destruction what are we holding close what are we building up what's going to keep telling us that we're moving in the right direction and so for me personally I'm remembering that and saying to myself has my community gotten the best from me lately Or is all of my energy going towards white supremacy? Has my community gotten my laughter? Have they gotten my resources? Have they gotten my time? Have my children gotten that? Have I been able to rest? And have I recognized what a vital part I am to this? And like, have I written myself into the future I'm trying to build? And that is so important because you will never know what direction to move in if you're only focusing on oppressive powers. What you want to protect and what you want to build is the most important. That's our North Star. And we have to remember that. And so I'm just always trying to reconnect with community, trying to make time for community. I hope that people with more privilege recognize that a lot of their jobs, since they're not facing the onslaught of it, is to say, I'm going to have a lot of these tough conversations. I'm going to leverage my privilege to move things so that those of us who are actually primarily targeted by these systems can say, I'm going to make sure that my girlfriend here ate lunch, you know, and I'm going to make sure that, you know, we got time to rest, right? That matters. Yeah, yeah. You know, 2020, when we were all traumatized and those of us doing racial justice work were working 24-7, It was only black women saying, sis, did you eat today? You know, you should eat today. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) I remember. That reminder I needed, you know, and no one else was checking on that. Everyone else was like, can you give us more time? Can you give us more effort? Can you give us more this? Mm -hmm. And recognizing that no one can do that for us but us. And that has to be a priority is how we do this and how we get through this.
0: That's Ijoma Oluo. Her latest book, Be a Revolution How Everyday People Are Fighting Oppression and Changing the World, and How You Can Too, is available now wherever books are sold. Ijoma, thank you.
1: Thank you. This has been really wonderful to talk with you.
0: This episode was produced by me and Dan Tucker, and it was edited by Dan and mixed by Brenda Ruiz. If you like the conversation, check out our recent talk with rapper Common about his new book, And Then We Rise, A Guide to Loving and Taking Care of Self. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk tomorrow.